Welcome to Behavior Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Given the strange and turbulent times that we are living through, Kurt and I decided to reach out to some of our favorite behavioral science researchers and practitioners to get their take on the novel coronavirus pandemic that is shaking the world. These special edition episodes will explore a variety of different aspects of the crisis and our response to each of those aspects through a behavioral lens. We know that you may feel overwhelmed by the crisis already. It seems every news story, every social media thread, every phone conversation that we have is focused on some aspect of the pandemic right now. While the news and updated information are essential, we're going to take a different tact. We want to try to understand the science behind our reactions and our behaviors and how science can help us cope and move beyond the current crisis. In each episode, we talk with a different behavioral science expert and get their best thinking on an aspect of the crisis. So sit back, take a deep breath, and listen to our special series on behavioral science and the coronavirus pandemic. Steve Curtis, welcome to the Behavioral Grooves podcast. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. We are excited to have you. Yes, yes. We're very interested in, in talking about uh, some of your work. And uh, could we just start with sort of an overview, just a little bit of a, uh, an overview of your work as a neuroscientist and clinical performance psychologist? I came to psychology through neuroscience, and uh, my first work in neuroscience was around the issue of, uh, a lot of it was around the issue of anxiety and brain function, tendency to repeat behaviors, um, flexibility, plasticity of brain function, all of those kind of mixed together across my grad school and my postdoc experiences. So I came away with a real amazing kind of, I guess it's a recognition of this brain's amazing ability to be flexible and to adjust to the environment. And that was a really very unique kind of, uh, of an insight for me over the, the years. It's served me really well, I think, to think about the brain as a semi-permanent record of where we've been and what we're capable of. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned brain plasticity. And for those who are not familiar with that term, can you give us a quick definition of what brain plasticity refers to? I think most people like to think that the brain is is in stone or concrete and it is what it is. But in fact, it's very uh, malleable in terms of function and capacity. And uh, it basically comes to reflect whatever we've lived with to some degree, certainly the DNA determines our brain's capacity, but it uh, more than, than you would realize uh, can very quickly come to reflect what the environment uh, is, is doing and what you're experiencing in the world. So if you play the violin over many years, your brain will come to reflect a very strong left hand uh, motor cortex, uh, lots of complexity there and, and a very well-developed motor cortex for your left hand, but not your right so much. Um, so pretty much anything we do turns into a reflection in how the brain operates. And I think that for most people is, is kind of a surprising recognition. Um, so that, that then was the basis for me then moving um, in the early 90s into clinical work. And I've done clinical work with uh, people with depression and anxiety and a lot of performance work with athletes and musicians on how to perform at a high level. 
but all of that brain understanding that I came with uh, to the clinical realm has helped me a lot. And it helps me understand how people are resistant to change and how they have a difficult time making even positive improvements in their life. Well, where do you see that in the, in the brain? This, the, we, we talk about in, in behavioral science, we've, we talk about status quo bias as being such an incredibly powerful uh, aspect of the human condition. But you see this in the brain as well, right? Well, there's this balance between the capacity of the brain to be malleable versus its capacity to be um, support very repetitious thoughts and behaviors, which we tend to prefer. But it's, I would say it's, it's uh, semi-plastic in the sense that uh, you can create um, new brain connections with new behaviors. And over time, I guess the real plasticity comes as you re- repeat something. If you do the same uh, behavior, the same thing over and over and over, just like the violin player with the left hand, uh, you're creating more synapses, and the synapses become more efficient with use. That's what we call Hebb's Law. A guy named Donald Hebb recognized that back in the, in the late 50s and 60s, that the more often you, you light up a synapse in the brain that connects the neurons, uh, the more efficient that, that synapse becomes. So it doesn't take as much energy, much, as much blood flow or oxygen to fire off that synapse the next time. So in in sense, in a real sense, it becomes a preference for us. We're going to behave into the future in in the next 10 minutes. Our bias is to repeat what we've done in the past simply, I think, on the basis of reinforcement uh, potentials that can come in and and change the equation as well in, in terms of favoring a behavior that gets us reinforcement. But at the very synaptic level, down there way at the very basis of how neurons talk to each other, there's this increase in efficiency, which I believe very strongly biases us toward repetition. We're really good at repeating. Yeah. Is, is that what lends itself into habit formation then as well? The, those strengthened synapses in the neural networks that are reinforced over time so that they become automatic as opposed to having to use your prefrontal cortex to really think through what, what you have to do? Very much. And uh, the lower brain in particular stores those repeated behaviors. And we don't need prefrontal engaged behavior. About 95% of what we do is pretty much what we did yesterday. Uh, So creativity is is a challenge. I mean, we really have to be in the right conditions to engage in creative thinking, creative behavior, even just basic new behavior of trying to brush your teeth with your left hand or your off hand is, is probably going to be dangerous. Um, <laughs> it can take a while to, to learn anything that we're not used to. So you, you and the older we get, the older we get, the worse it is. You, you talk about you need the right conditions to be creative. What are some of those conditions that can help us try something new or be more creative in those, in those moments? I think by far the most important variable that determines whether we can be creative and try something new is our level of fear. Mm. Uh, Fear has a really uh, profound consequence for brain physiology in that even moderate fear, now the, the phrase that I'm hearing in the literature more and more is the prefrontal cortex is offline. Mm-hmm. with moderate fear. So as you 
have anxiety in your life, you basically are operating without your prefrontal region and you're relying then on what you've learned through repetition in the uh, amygdala, lower brain areas, the striatum is now being seen as a real repository for repetitive behaviors. So once you've gotten rid of the prefrontal region because of, I think, blood flow and inhibition from amygdala, get rid of that prefrontal, you really don't, don't need it. If you're being threatened, you don't want to stop and contemplate. You want to run or fight. Mm-hmm. So it's it's adaptive in a real sense. That if we're afraid, it doesn't make sense to, to think. We should just do what has got us through similar fear situations in the past, repeat, 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 and we're more likely to survive. And that's basically the underlying logic of all of this, is why would I want to adapt to the environment and repeat behaviors? Because it's keeping me alive. And who knows, if I try something new, who knows what will happen. And so this is where we are. This is where we find ourselves in the middle of this COVID crisis, right? With a a lot of behavior that is driven by fear and uh, literally turning our prefrontal cortex offline. Very much. And of course, what we need at this time is to be creative and we need to come up with new strategies and adapt to new challenges day to day. I think what we see, and, and the numbers are fairly disturbing, there's a 200% increase in alcohol use or purchases. I suppose when you get rid of the bars, people are buying their own. But the increase in in, in addictions is, is substantial right now, and there are certainly repetitive behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, we like repetition because it calms us down. If we tried something new, there's this, this annoying fear of neophobia. One of my first projects in graduate school was to study neophobia in animals. And it's a real thing. It, uh, it's just, again, a, a reflex we have for fear in situations where there's something significantly new. And that makes some sense. If it's new and we're not sure about it, we should be afraid of it possibly and back away. Um, so that's built-in limit on our creativity. Uh, we try something new until it creates so much in neophobia that we return to the old behavior. So it's a self-limiting creativity that we have available to us. Does fear get in the way? Well, I'm, I'm kind of curious though, how, so this is a time when creativity could really be beneficial to us, right? Because it's a, it's a very challenging time. How difficult is it for us, though, to engage those creative parts of our brain when there is this baseline anxiety and, and fear about the, you know, what's going on and how things are going to be tomorrow? Well, it's very much a, I look at this as a performance issue. Uh, I work with performers. I worked uh, with many athletes, thousands of athletes over the years here at Indiana University. And I've also taught at the School of Music for quite a few years. And the same kinds of issues arise in all those settings is how do you perform well when you're under performance pressure? And I would say we're all under performance pressure right now. There's an anxiety about getting up out of bed today and and knowing what to do next. Um, So there's a, a need to develop. And this is what I did with all the people I work with. I work with business people, too, on the same issues of, you know, how do you mail it when you finally get that sales meeting that you've been waiting to get for a couple of years and you finally get to stand up in front of the, the potential new client and your fear overcomes you and you blow the meeting. I mean, you just can't perform well. 
we see that day to day. I think uh, we call it a choke. Mm-hmm. We certainly can recognize choke in athletic situations and maybe even music sometimes. Um, but I'm convinced over many years now that we have our own mini chokes every day. And we go to situations, especially in this kind of fear ravaged uh, situation we're in now. And we, we have opportunities possibly to perform well with our family or with our job and the anxiety is so high that we're making bad choices and we can't perform well. Yeah. The truth is is obviously we can't do anything well when we're afraid. We can't even run or fight very well when we're afraid. (laughs) So what are some things that you, when you're working with these athletes and these musicians, what are some of the the coaching tips that you give them to help overcome? Is it practice? Is it a, a mindset? Is it some combination of a multitude of things, which I'm sure it probably is, but what, what are those, those tips that you, you helped uh, get these people through these fear choking moments? Well, we go right back to Hebb's law and the more you practice something, the, the better you get at it. And uh, to just practice calming down. Oh, uh, to just, to learn it and relearn it and repractice it and build it up so that it's a really strong uh, habit available to you and you can choose to be calm whenever you want to be. So I work with PGA golfers and if they can't play on Sunday afternoon, they can't be out there. Mm. So it's a, it's a requirement in that kind of uh, that you can't control your fear, you can't perform. And I think it also applies certainly to first responders and the doctors and nurses who are living with constant fear of their own uh, health in these emergency room situations, uh, that they can't think clearly and make good choices and judgment. So people who live with lots of of stressful, fearful situations in their lives tend to learn how to calm down. But for most of us, it's a skill that really has to be practiced. Yeah, so it's not practicing the skill per se, particularly given that this is such an unknown, brand new, novo coronavirus, and the the response that we've had is 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 you know unprecedented. So at this point, it's it's practicing actually how to become calm, and and if you can practice that calm, it doesn't matter what the situation is, you can get yourself back into that calming state to then allow yourself to be perform better in in whatever situation that is. Is that what I'm hearing? Right. I think that. Uh... A lot of times it's like an insight issue. Well, I know I shouldn't be calm. And when I get to that situation, I'll be calm because I'll calm myself down. But if you haven't practiced it a thousand times, then it's not a benefit to you. And you think, well, that didn't work. (laughs) And then, of course, if you're not paying attention, you drink three cups of coffee and you're out of the ballpark anyway. So. It, it seems so intuitive to say, it, don't worry, you know, you, you've done all the work practicing your instrument or your or the, the tools you're using while you're playing your game, but to practice calming down just seems like such a brilliant piece of advice that is so overlooked. Oh, it, we can do it when the conditions are right. You know, you can decide to calm down when you're sitting on your chair in your house and, and you can relax and you know how to relax, but do you know how to relax when the, the spotlight's on you and you've got a 12 foot putt to win the tournament. Yeah. So it, it has to be a really strong habit. It has to be very well developed or it becomes a disappointment and choke happens very quickly. And so I, I don't encourage performers of any type to get into 
situations that they haven't fully prepared for because they're very likely to choke. I think many, many musicians and athletes stop playing sports or music in their preteen years because the anxiety is so uncomfortable. They don't associate this whole experience with a positive uh, outcome or benefit. And it's more negative, so they stop playing. And maybe they had a lot of talent. I had, even at this graduate level here at Indiana University, we have a great school of music, great performers come in here. But if you, and they only have three or four times to perform a year, which, which is sad. Mm-hmm. They should have more per- performance opportunities to learn how to perform. Mm-hmm. But when they do get a performance opportunity here, you can get the best violin players that, that is coming out of, of secondary schools all over the world. They come here. And if they can't perform under pressure, then they crash and burn and they leave the school and you know, their, their single best thing they do in the world is lost to them. Yeah. It's very sad to see. But on the other hand, once they can learn how to calm down, they can manage their nerves. It's like a speed bump in their career. I think of it as a minor thing. But once you learn how to calm down, then you're, you have the capacity to be in the zone. And if you can't be in the zone in athletics or music, people don't want to watch. One of the things that are involves creativity in in your work and performance is this uh, idea of the importance of creating the ideal or being able to visualize. You talked about visualization, right? Visualizing the ideal is a really key part of this. Is that is that is that correct, Steve? Well, we <clears throat> excuse me. We all operate <clears throat> excuse me moment to moment with expectations of how the world should work and how we should perform. So in, in a real sense, we have an ideal expectation for how we're going to walk down the stairs. Mm. And most often we get close to that and we make it to the bottom of the stairs. We have this expectation for almost everything we do. And most of the things we've done, we've done before. So we already have like a template in the brain of what it's supposed to look like and feel like. And we try to match that template. Okay, I'm going to make toast this morning. Well, here's how I make toast know how to come out, well, it's okay. You know, we, we live with that kind of ideal, if you will, expectation. Those exist as neural networks in the brain. So we have an ideal of what it should look like. We can imagine a good piece of toast, and then we try to match that with our behaviors. Now, the larger issues of ideal, which we, we use the word ideal uh, most often for, are larger expectations of the best possible. Now we can talk about the best possible piece of toast, or we can also move up to the the level of the best possible life we might live. And I work with a lot of people and athletes and musicians included on if everything could work out in your life as well as it might, an ideal outcome for you over the next 10 years would look like what? Where would you be? What would you be doing? Try to imagine what that, that would consist of. So that is special. That's different. We set ideals and expectations for day-to-day behaviors with a different part of the brain. But the big goals that we set in our lives tend to light up an area that's, that we have that animals don't have. It's called the frontal polar cortex. And it's distinctive to human beings. And it allows us to be idealistic. And it allows us to be I don't want to say it just happens in frontal polar cortex, but it certainly involves frontal polar cortex, which even the the great apes have almost none of of this capacity. 
And it's almost like we're burdened with this brain area that really wants to light up. We want to be inspired to have some high aspirations in our life. And sometimes we have that and sometimes we don't. I think it's a key element for mental health generally. If we have an aspiration, gets us out of bed in the morning, gets us excited every morning, we're moving towards something. It's, it's, when I ask people, what's the best time in your life? They go back to some time that was hard. They were in law school or they were going through uh, some sort of a, a physical training for cross country or something. They go back to some part of their life where they were being challenged and they had to, had to perform at a very high level. So that's the ideal expectation element here is we have the capacity to set a large goal and go do that thing. And I think the key here is that if we can set a large enough goal, then we somehow, and it's an interesting brain brain hierarchy here that's involved, you can light up the polar cortex. It doesn't always light up. It just lights up when there's some large benefit that's perceived in the environment or we can imagine. You can imagine and see a great new benefit that you're going to get. Okay, if I get that promotion, then I can buy the new house and I can get the new car. And you can imagine what it's like to get the email or get the the, uh, communication that you've been promoted. You can imagine that. It's like it's a special case that allows new behavior. I've talked about the power of repetition. The exception to the rule of repetition is new behavior that's in the name of a large goal. If it's not a large enough goal and the frontal polar cortex doesn't light up, it's like, oh, gee, I'm going to lose a couple pounds. But if you say I'm going to lose pounds, I can with three of my friends in June. Now you've got something that's worth talking about. And that qualifies then as a large goal, as an ideal goal. And that then allows you to get up after dinner instead of eating ice cream. You're going to do the hiking around your neighborhood that gets you in shape to go to Mount Kilimanjaro. So most people, when they set goals in their life, they don't get there. They don't get started with them and sustain the behaviors required to to be successful. They can't sustain those because usually the goal is not large enough. If you have specific large goals, it's much easier then to, to, to use those to your advantage in this way. If it's just a general goal of I'm going to be a better golfer next year, it's just not going to happen. So you make a specific goal. I'm going to be walking across the stage to get my law degree in three years. And you imagine it, you're shaking hands or bumping elbows with the, uh, the dean of the school. Or it's coming to you <laughs> online. Yeah. If you can visualize the outcome very clearly, it's much more powerful than in moving you toward that kind of, of outcome. And, and the new behaviors required, a lot of new behaviors required. If you're not in law school now and you're going to graduate in three years, what, you got to save money, you got to do this annoying stuff of applying, you have to take the LSAT. You know, all these new hard behaviors, why would they happen? Well, they happen because of the big vision that you've got for graduating from law school and having that career then. And you can visualize what that's going to look like. But it's this visualization of a large, large benefit, large, big goal that then lights up frontal polar cortex, which I believe is required really for this 
new behavior to show up. So how good how good are people at expressing that ideal for themselves? You said you have to you know sometimes work with them for two or three weeks. Just in general, if they're not working with somebody, are, are we really good at that overall, in your opinion? Well, I think when we're children, our large goals are set for us. You know, you're going to graduate from grade school and high school and maybe college. And there are expectations that are put on you uh, by your family or your people around you. Um, maybe your music teacher or your art teacher or your track coach or somebody gives you some vision for where you could go in the world. I think after we get past our education in most cases, um, it's up to us. And people are often not very good at, at looking into the future and deciding what they want to accomplish. And I've read that the most successful people in the world think and visualize 20 years ahead. I don't know how about you, but 20 years ahead, you know, is a long time. It's a long way. And, and people in their 20s, I work a lot with college students, obviously, here in, uh, and athletes are in their prime are, are where are they going to be in 10 years? Where do they want to be? Do they want to be? I've, I've challenged a couple of golfers to, okay, you're, you've won tournaments. What about the Hall of Fame? You know, get something that, that grabs your attention and, and pushes you in, the, in, a, in a harsh way, almost hard way at least, to keep working on your skills, keep developing your skills. Then, gee, Hall of Fame happens. It doesn't fall into people's lap. They, they get there because they expect that it's going to happen. You can't imagine it. It's very unlikely to happen. Is there a correlation between uh, the quality of the visualization that can be done and the outcomes or the results that, that people get? Yeah, the, the brain, again, is, is key here. And, and the more brain you can incorporate in your visualization, the more effective it's going to be in driving your new behavior. So if you can imagine the writing of winning the U.S. Open and just written on a on a piece of paper, that's not very powerful. But if you can imagine you're walking up the 18th fairway and the crowd is going crazy and they're handing you the trophy, you know, and the, and the check is showing in your uh, bank account, you know, that, that you, and you can hear the crowd and smell the crowd. I don't know. But the more sense, the more sensory input that you can bring to the uh, visualization, the more powerful it is because it involves more brain tissue and more mass action there. The whole brain can get involved in visualizing something. And that is very compelling. And of course, when you lay down that network of firing pattern, then every time you think about the U.S. Open, you can resurrect that same experience and that same sensory uh, experience and, and cognitive. So that the more brain you bring to the visualization, the more powerful it is in, in moving you in that direction. So it works almost as a as a motivator, right? When you're firing those those uh, neurons and those synapses are getting you know reinforced all the time by that visualization, that keeps you motivated to continue doing the the practice that you need to do in order to get there. Is that one of the benefits of that visualization? Right, the hard work. Now again, it's it's a distinct anomaly, I suppose, in day-to-day in -day, uh, brain activity that we come up with a big goal. It's not very often that we sit back and decide what we're going to do for the next 10 years. So it, it is a rare thing. Uh, other areas of prefrontal tend to direct us in our 
you know, what are we going to wear? You look at your closet, you decide what you're going to have for lunch. All those visualizations and imaginings happen with without much you know, vision. It's just kind of more driven by habit. So this is a, a distinct, rare event in our lives that we really commit to some large goal. It does have this power then to allow new behavior, which is key. I mean, if you can't get started on building your skills, you're not going to get to the U.S. Open. You know, showing up at the practice range early and leaving late and doing the extra work so that you are the best golfer. If you're, if you're not the best golfer, they won't hand you the, the trophy. You know, so you have to have the skills. And I work with kids on very defined goals then when they're playing golf, just hit targets, only focus on targets, become very specific on what you want to accomplish. Give yourself scores for how accurate you are. Let's let's re, really define the goal very very distinctly. I mean, if you're the most accurate golfer for four days out there, they hand you a big check. Very simple. You don't have to beat anybody. You don't have to do anything special. If you can hit targets and pick smart targets, the game becomes pretty easy. But uh, that's the way it and it falls in line then behind the expectation that I'm. I will be a great call and I will win the US Open. The ideal then drives the, the hard work to get there. Yeah. Uh, so, Steve, tell us a little bit about some of the market research. Well, we use the same survey and we use the same strategy of ideal and real. And we ask customers, how should it feel if I could buy an ideal product or I had an ideal buying experience or an ideal service experience? Tell me how you would feel if you had the best possible. Uh, car, ideal, best imaginable car. And we've done this for car manufacturers in the past. A number of people can tell us the emotions they'd feel. They'd feel pride and they would feel smart and they would feel, you know, fulfilled. All these emotion words show up when they talk about the ideal buying experience for an ideal car. It's easy for them to imagine. And then you can ask them, well, how do you feel when you bought your current car? Or the last shopping experience, how did you feel when you looked at cars? And they can tell us about what, what they feel about their current car compared to the ideal car. And you've got this big gap again between what people really want and what they're getting. And then that information for the company is golden. I mean, you can go back and redesign your car to match people's expectations. You can change the product. And more often, what they do is they change their messaging about the product to emphasize the the largest expectations that the customer has for that particular category of product for a car. And, and how effective is that? Well, <laughs> it was fun. We worked for Toyota at one point and, uh, and uh, we gave them some data that said, you know, uh, basically um, these are the requirements for a, an ideal car, an ideal truck. They were selling the, the Tundra truck, and we surveyed and compared lots of different cars and I'm sorry, different truck brands. And we came back and said, "There, here are the qualities that you need to emphasize when you talk about a two-ton pickup truck." And they took those and took them to their ad agency, and they came up with ads that that more than doubled the sale of their trucks in six months. And the ideal, the aspiration of what it is people want in a pickup truck was all we delivered to them. And it's really all that they they considered when they made these ads and they rang the bell. 
and what's going on there, let's harken back to the, the brain science uh, a bit, is again, you're finding out what the eye is. And if you give a person, a person who's a potential pickup truck buyer, you give them an ad that rings the bell on ideals of what the ideal truck should consist of and look like and feel like. If you give him that and you ring the bell with the frontal polar cortex, then this new buying behavior, again, it's new behavior. Maybe they haven't, they certainly haven't bought this truck before. It's a brand new truck and you want them to engage in new buying behavior. Well, new buying behavior is not going to happen on a whim or a slightly, you know, gee, that's slightly better than what I've got you got to ring the bell and say, this is the ideal truck. I found it finally, you know, and that's going to get them out of their chair and head for the Toyota dealership. And ideal, again, is dragging. We can be dragged around by our ideals. You know, that's really what's going on here. And in the marketplace, ideals are, are tremendously powerful. But most companies only ask about their product. They don't ask about the ideal expectation that the customer has for that product category. You know, we worked a lot for Hallmark cards. What's the ideal card shop experience? Well, people have very clear understandings of how it should feel. And then there's a gap between how it should feel and what the Hallmark store feels. Now, they get pretty close to defining the category. So it's pretty close between ideal and real, but there were still very significant gaps between what their loyal customers wanted and what they were delivering. And it allowed them to tune up their shops, tune up the product lines that they were carrying, and make them more ideal. And the more ideal you are, the more you sell. It's very, very good. We have very high levels of predictive validity. And predictive validity is that golden statistic that says if you take action on what you learn, do you move the dial in the right direction? And we have a qualitative survey. We do it quantitatively with thousands of people online. There's no other instrument we know of that comes close to delivering any predictive validity on qualitative data. I mean, you do focus groups or, in, or interviews, there's nothing quantitative to, to really gather there. It's very hard to quantify focus groups. Rigorously quantified, it gives you very clear gap analyses between ideal and real. And you take action to close the gap, and gee whiz, you sell more stock. That's all that, I got to say. That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is that simple. Steve, thank you so much for joining us on Behavioral Grooves today. Yeah, we appreciate very, it. Very happy to be here. Thanks very much. Welcome to the special edition grooving session where Tim and I groove on some of the ideas and concepts that were inspired by our conversation with Steve. All right, Tim, what inspired you? I got one word for you, son. Plasticity. Plasticity. Plastics, Plastics. are the future. Plastics. Right? Exactly. <laughs> the graduate. When Dustin Hoffman's getting the lecture on what to do. Yeah. That's no, that's not the plastic we're talking about. <laughs> what kind of plasticity are we talking about here? Neuroplasticity. And yeah. what is neuroplasticity? That the brain is malleable. How wonderful is that? That we have, that, of course, that's why we are where we are as humans, right? Because we are malleable, because we grow, because we change, we adapt, we figure stuff out. And I think that that's pretty cool. And I loved how Steve talked about that. 
really, really loved how Steve talked about neuroplasticity and and the what the benefits that it has to us as a species and to us as individuals as we go through our lives. Well, there was a point in time where uh, behavioral scientists uh, thought that after a certain point, uh, your brain was pretty much formed and that was it. That was your person. You were stuck with your personality after, you know, mid twenties and a whole bunch of other factors and what they've come to realize. And neuroscientists have been key on this is that that is definitely not true. That the synapses within our brains are constantly realigning. They're getting stronger and weaker by use and non-use variety of different connections are still being built that all of those factors of how we think how we behave, which are run through the brain, are in fact malleable and that they can be shifted and you can purposely do things to help. Now, it's not silver bullets. It's not going to change you overnight, but long-term habits are built through reinforcement of various synopsis within the brain, your neurons firing within the similar context with cues and those things change the way we think they change how we operate in the world and so it's really fascinating and they contribute to the creation of habits right this is amazing that uh, as our brain changes the synapses change the connections the neurotransmitters making these connections change from experience to experience. The more that we do those specific things that we love or want to do or or just kind of get in a rut doing become our habits that our brain literally changes around what a habit is versus what's not a habit. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. And it's really interesting. I was just reading some recent research on this, um, uh, actually reading Behave by um, uh, Robert. Uh, Sapolsky. Excuse Sapolsky. Me. Some, yeah. It, fascinating work on you know habits and the way that the the neuron transmitters get reinforced there and how they start off in the prefrontal cortex uh, but as a habit builds actually those synapses in your amygdala are actually creating some of those firings so it's more of the core part of your brain the more reptilian automatic response of the brain where some of that gets transferred into so it frees up your prefrontal cortex to be thinking about things that require you to think about it as opposed to those automatic response habitual factors that we do yeah uh, it, it might be worth just noting hebb's law that was yeah unfamiliar to me and uh, the importance of how those synaptic connections are creating are, are literally uh, in the physical, very physical and physiological world of creating habits. I thought that was very cool too. Yeah. You get stronger. You know, the more that you use a synapses, the more that you light it up, so to say, the more efficient it becomes. You uh, make sure you're actually strengthening them mm-hmm. so that the electrical current and pulse that goes through them uh, is, is faster and, and easier to do and thus, uh, you know, makes it more efficient. Last comment along those lines is it reminded me of how Chiara Verzani, when we talked to her, uh, you know, from the Australian government, was really big on letting us know that neuroscience is undervalued. And Steve did a great job of reinforcing that without actually having something to promote. He was just saying, we're 
kind of missing behavioral science in general is lacking a dedication and a commitment to the integration of neuroscience that could really benefit uh, all the work. And I realize it's hard. It tends to be more expensive. It's more difficult. Yet, wow, there's so much to learn there. Yeah. Well, and he was a neuroscientist first before he became a psychologist. So uh, he brings a wealth of information on that. And I think to your point, the more that we know about that, the the better off we will be as behavioral scientists because our behavior is driven by those connections in our brain and the way the brain is wired and the way that the brain functions. We know that, um, but we don't know exactly how, and we don't understand all of the nuance. I mean, the vast sheer number of connections that we have between synapses in our brain is billions upon billions. And the there's there's no way to even start to be able to map that. But the better we can understand how it works, the more we're going to be informed of how we can drive positive changes that we want and how we can control uh, either positive or negative behaviors that we want to elicit or we want to stop. So, yeah. So what else caught your attention, Kurt? He talked about how fear inhibits creativity Mm -hmm. and just this idea of how much fear and stress has a negative impact on our ability to think clearly. And as he said, take the prefrontal cortex offline. Yeah. We respond automatically. We have less blood flowing into our prefrontal cortex and we get all of these elements that we just fall back on the amygdala and, and our fight and flight and a variety of other factors that come in. And particularly as we think about the times that we're living in right now, that has a lot to be said for, I think, Uh, much of the reactions that we are having both as individuals, but as communities and societies overall as well. In this discussion, Steve brought the term neophobia to us, which I thought was terrific. And he went on to say that uh, we can't do anything well when we're afraid. We can't even run or fight. So like (laughs) this, this whole idea that fight or flight is supposed to be this automatic system one thinking, of course it is, but the, but fear mitigates that it, it limits our ability to actually respond even in that in that way and i go back to the the trolley car dilemma right that when we're actually put in these situations where there's moral dilemmas are are really big decisions to to be made around human life it's really hard to act it's hard yeah. to do anything well i remember uh, uh being uh, what i don't even remember what i was being afraid of but it was something, and I remember turning and running. And it was a perfectly flat yard. It was when I was a kid, and I tripped and fell like three times. Wow. Because, as you said, you're, we're not even good at the running part of that <laughs> f- fight or flight, which normally running, uh, I, I would not have fallen. Yeah, I was pretty uh, athletic kid. I wasn't. You okay. Know, a guy that fumbled around a lot, but because of the fear and the overacting and your all the adrenaline that's going on, it's actually 
created that fact. So if there was a bear chasing me, I would have been gobbled up because I tripped and fell multiple times on, on that run. Well, you're the guy that I want to be with when the gear, when the bear starts chasing us. <laughs> <laughs> I still might be faster than you, Tim. <laughs> Actually, that's probably pretty easy. <laughs> but uh, what else, Kurt? Well, I think there's just some interesting pieces. Actually, that it reminded me, um, who was the researcher we saw uh, about um, oh. uh, stress in in lower income uh you're you know, thinking of Toya Najahi from City yes. Block Health. Yeah. Yes, where she was talking about this idea that, wow, people on that lower end of the socioeconomic um, ladder are, are constantly living with this fear of uh, how am I going to pay for things? How am I going to survive? And so there's always this fear. And so there's this tra- trauma that's going on. So the this aspect of like, well, you should take better care of your health is lost on them because some of the things that Steve just brought up, we don't have our full functioning prefrontal cortex working in those situations. And we're stuck in these responses that are more automated and habitual and just the cognitive ease part of things. So yeah, we're not going to go in and get our health check. We're not going to eat healthier. We're not going to be doing some of these things. And it's not because we don't want to. It's just that we're living in this world of fear and our cognitive processes are being uh, limited right. to a certain degree. That plays a part in this. It's not the, the only thing, but it, it does have a part to play in that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well said. Well said. Uh, one of the biggest things that, that struck me in this conversation was the importance of practicing calming down. This was a big damn deal because I thought that is something that you can replicate anywhere in your life. Mm-hmm. You can use it just about in any situation. If you understand how to calm yourself down, that is a skill that is tremendously undervalued in my estimation. Yeah. And I think we have often overlooked this, particularly when we're thinking about preparing for something that might be scary, a, uh, presentation that you're giving up in front of a lot of people or some act where you're out in front of a large audience or any type of thing that could be fearful for you is we practice, 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 but we also practice in a situation that isn't necessarily equivalent to actually being in front of that audience. It doesn't induce that same amount of fear. And this idea of just being able to practice calming ourselves down to get us back in that place where the practice uh, is more contextual, like where we're going and we're not, our blood isn't pumping and racing and we're not having that surge of adrenaline coming through us that overtakes us and doesn't allow us to go back to that spot where we got really good at practicing this, but we practice it in a calm state. And so we get to need to get back to that calm state in order to really take advantage of all that practice that we've done. Yeah. And Learning how to calm ourselves down could, again, be used in just about any situation, not just, oh, this is my first time performing in front of a, at Carnegie Hall, you know, uh, that would be something that would be nerve inducing to a lot of performers who hadn't been there before. Uh, But what about just having a difficult 
political conversation with the, your grumpy uncle, you know, <laughs> like it's that, always the grumpy uncle that can definitely, always the grumpy uncle because <laughs> yeah, that can be emotional and stimulate a lot of uh, discomfort and learning how to calm down, practicing how to calm down could actually be beneficial in a situation like that. And in the, in the world, you know, in the, or in the work world, I think about something that Brad Shuck said to us one time about how, um, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said something along the lines of that, you know, today is the first day that I've ever done it this way. Like, you know, t- today is new. The context is different. Maybe I've done this thing before, but I've never done it in this particular context. And I need to give myself a little grace because I might be failing at it. Yeah. And it's that sense of grace that I think can bring some of that sense of calmness, right? And so mm-hmm. it's allowing us to say, we will do as best we can and there's enough meat in the sauce and to <laughs> yes. not worry about that to the point where it, it impedes that worry. It actually impedes our ability to do something. Yeah. Yeah. What did you think about Steve's discussion about goals? All right. So, you know, I love talking about goals. We both love we talking, love talking about, about goals. goals. Yes. So there's this idea of, this idealized self or these big, hairy, audacious goals. And yet we also know that there's this need for more achievable goals. Uh, We talked with Gary Latham, who's talking about one of the key components about goal setting theory is that you have to believe that you can accomplish the goal. If you can't, if you don't believe it, if you don't have that underlying uh, self-efficacy, you that goal is going to be meaningless to you and it's not going to do anything. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Steve was really good about bringing up these BHAGs, the, the, the big, hairy, audacious goals, these lifelong dreams, these, he, you know, he even talked about how the most successful people are able to, you know, envision goals that are 20 years out. So uh, let's come back to that because I've got questions about that, but just the ability to imagine something that's really big and really huge I, I don't know how that applies to everybody. I can see mm-hmm. that applying to uh, uh, many people, but certainly not everybody. Uh, yeah, the Michael Jordans of the world, yes. But for for other people, they may not have a, a big overarching goal. And maybe that's okay. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe that's not what you know Steve was talking to. But to right. that right. degree, I don't know... I mean, we started this podcast and did we have the big, hairy, (laughs) audacious goal for what it was going to be? Well, Uh, maybe, maybe that's the problem that we have not reached world domination because we didn't. (laughs) Oh, but I, aren't we so close to world domination right now? I mean, we're almost there and we didn't even plan for it. We didn't have a goal for that. Oh, closer every day. Um, (laughs) But, but to get back to your, your concept about having these, uh, having a mix of the big, hairy, audacious goals, and then something that I like to refer to as bricks. We need to be thinking about the small goals too, the short-term goals, the things that are short-term achievable to help put fuel in the engine, to help give us that sense of, I am making progress, right? Yeah. Uh, Going back to Teresa Amobli and, and that progress principle, right? The idea that we are motivated by seeing that progress and being part of something that is moving forward and every day or every week, that just is a reinforcement of the motivation in order to keep this going. And I love your 
term bricks, right? These small pieces uh, building a wall, but you got to build it brick by brick. Brick And that bricks have to be put in place at the right time and in the right spot in the right way. Otherwise, your wall is going to fall down. Yeah, and and maybe those those bricks don't light up the frontal polar cortex like Steve <laughs> talks about. So uh, that and and I think that that's okay because it really takes a tremendous amount of focus in your life to get to those ideals, to get into those those behags. You have to change a lot in your life to to uh, achieve those things. Like he talks about the the golf the best golfer in the world or the best right. tennis player in the world. And those are really key for for certain people, right? But yes. how many people really want to be the very best golfer in the world? I'm sure there's a handful, but I think the vast majority of people don't have the time or the wherewithal or the or the interest interest to to do that and they want to just live life and live life to the fullest that they can and maybe that's their big hairy audacious goal i don't know yeah so just getting back to this idea of these long-term goals how does that fit with work that we've seen from dan gilbert or a diener on happiness and the kind of the way our context changes the way the world changes the way we change and grow how, yeah, the site. Yeah, go ahead. Well, how important is it for us to s- establish and then cling to the vision of uh, achieving this very one specific thing when there's so much change in our world? Well, and and the fact is, Dan Gilbert says we are horrible, and I'm paraphrasing. We are horrible at predicting our futures and what will make us happy. Yeah. We think that getting that house, getting that promotion, getting that gold medal will solve all of our happiness needs and we will be ecstatic uh, and it will just make the world full of unicorns and rainbows and everything else. But we know, we know that that is not the case. It is actually, you get that house, you get that promotion, you win that gold medal, and it doesn't make you as happy as you thought it would in most instances. And there's something about striving for that. If you're thinking that it's going to make you happy, make sure that you really understand the impact that we'll have. And then oftentimes too, there's this big letdown when you don't get that new house, you don't get that promotion, you end up getting a silver instead of a gold. And the research on, you know, people, the the facial expression work that has been done on people who win the gold versus winning the silver versus winning the bronze and, you know, silver is by far the worst in what they're saying and in people being happy. Uh, You know, gold is great. Bronze is even really good because you're. You 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 made it into the metal round with a bronze. You made it in the metal round with a bronze, but it's silver. You missed getting the gold, right? And and so you feel like you didn't achieve the goal that you had set out to to achieve. And damn it, you made the freaking silver. It's like, holy crap. You know, in the entire world of, you know, Olympics. We have big troubles establishing long-term goals for good reasons. Yeah. That we are not well-suited for envisioning 
deep into the future that our uh, that our DNA is much more predisposed to dealing with the present than it is with the future, uh, or at least the the near future is is much easier for us. And and so it's going to be extremely rare for someone to be able to accurately forecast what they want to do uh, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years into the future. Right. What's the Henry Ford quote, right? Uh, if I would have asked them what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. <laughs> right. We, right. We can't always envision right. how the world is going to change and that world changing impacts how we show up in that world. So it's, it's crazy. Um, you know, and I think Dan Gilbert also does this thing about, we always think we can change a lot within a year and we really can't, but we always underestimate how much we can change in three to five years and those factors into it. We are just not good at those long-term predictions. And to Steve's point, I think if we could get better at that, that might actually allow us to achieve much greater accomplishments in in life and have really positive outcomes but we have to work at that and i think it's not something that comes easy and isn't just something you know not everybody wants to be the best tennis player in the world or the best golfer or the best basketball player or whatever the best neuroscientist or the best podcaster right we have various different things and we need to figure out what that goal is that's big enough to motivate us and get those polar frontal cortexes lighting up um, while still being something that is achievable. Thank you for listening to the special episode of Behavior Grooves. We hope that you found it interesting and insightful. If you liked it, please let others know. We think that the topic is important, and maybe we can help in educating people about how behavioral science can help us all out in this current craziness that we are going through. Also, please let us know if you have any thoughts or ideas that would be helpful or that we could share. You can reach us through the Connect tab on the Behavior Grooves website at www.behavioralgrooves.com or through Twitter. I am at T. Houlihan, and Kurt is at What Motivates. We really do love hearing from you, and this topic is one that spurs lots of emotions and thought. As part of our mission, we want to expand and inform the community of people who think about positively applying behavioral science to life. One way that happens is through leaving reviews. If you think this podcast is beneficial and should grow, we would really appreciate to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast server you use. It only takes a few minutes and goes a long way to boost us in the algorithms that are used to generate search results. Also, please check out the show notes. We are linking to a number of resources articles, podcasts, newsletters that we vetted to bring good facts and ideas around COVID-19 and the coronavirus, its impact and ways that we can help slow down the spread. There is a lot of information that's being pushed out to everyone each day, and we are weeding through it to find good stuff so that you don't have to. We truly appreciate you listening. Now go out and wash your hands. Wash your hands.